Let me pray uh, briefly, and uh, we'll get started. Uh, Lord, we thank you just for this time, and uh, anytime we open up your word, uh, we want to ask you to speak to us by your spirit. Uh, we know that hearing your word is, um, you know, I guess it's partially uh, intellectual and something that we have to pay attention to, but we know there's a also a spiritual component to it where we can actually um, see what you have to say to us today and convict us of hearts. So we ask that your uh, Holy Spirit would do that as we hear the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, <coughs> so my, uh, you know, my oldest daughter is in fourth grade, and she has a friend who is in fifth grade um, uh, on, on the soccer team. And uh, she has like this little competition with her about memorizing the capitals of all the states. So my daughter, <laughs> she's like trying to memorize all the capitals of all the states so that when, uh, you know, we drive her and her friend to soccer practice, she can be like, hey, w do you know what the state of, uh, f I mean, the capital of Florida is? And then they kind of like, um, Tallahassee, very good. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, so she's like, she was trying to memorize the capitals of all the states. And so I was like, hey, let me uh, introduce you to a, a, a song, a cartoon that I grew up listening to called Animaniacs. If you're a child of the 90s, you know Animaniacs. Animaniacs had all kinds of fun songs, and one of those songs was uh, this recitation of all the capitals of all the states in the United States. So I was on Apple Music, and I was like searching, you know, um, I think it's like Wacko's something, <laughs> like capitals and states or something. And I found it. I searched Animaniacs. But then when I searched Animaniacs, I was surprised because there was all these songs that I had never seen before from Animaniacs. And through that, I learned that they did a reboot of Animaniacs. So I looked it up, and I was like, oh, it's streaming on Hulu. They, they redid this, uh, this cartoon. So my kids and I, we started watching the reboot of Animaniacs. And uh, uh, they did it in a very clever way because uh, the way they did it was they basically wanted to create this show for two types of audiences. One is, of course, for kids. It's a cartoon, so they wanted kids to enjoy it with, like, goofy slapstick humor. But they also made the show for adults who grew up watching this show as kids. And so, therefore, there's all these kinds of, like, subtle uh, jokes that adults would probably chuckle at and enjoy, whereas for, like, younger kids, it goes over their heads. And I thought it was, like, a very, like, cool way to, to reboot the show uh, to reach, like, two different types of audiences. And I think the Gospel of John is actually a little bit like that because on one level, as I've been saying, there's a simplicity to the narrative and it tells us the story about who Jesus is uh, or who Jesus was uh, in his uh, humanity, who Jesus is also in his divinity, but also uh, what he wants us to do, which we see this phrase over and over again. We saw it in our passage, which is basically to believe in him and I think anybody who kind of reads it on that surface level will get a lot out of it for those reasons. But on another level, there is actually a depth of meaning to the Gospel of John that can be subtle, revealing another level of depth as in terms of who Jesus was. And this, I think, very, very long story certainly reflects the dynamic of having these kind of different layers of meaning. The first half of the Gospel of John is oftentimes called the Book of Signs because... This is where Jesus performs all these miracles. And John doesn't call them miracles, but he calls them signs. Signs because these miracles have a purpose, not in uh, the miracle in and of itself, but in terms of what the miracles are pointing to, what they signify. They point to a greater spiritual reality beyond what people are simply witnessing with their physical eyes. And by the way, just as an example of maybe some of the multiple layers uh, in this gospel, 
John writes this gospel with seven signs. In the book of Revelation, which we just looked at in Bible study this past week, also written by the Apostle John, seven is a very prominent number. There's seven angels and seven churches and seven bowls and seven plagues. It's a number that is supposed to represent wholeness or completeness. Seven is also, uh, I think, a prominent number in John's gospel because not only are there seven signs, but there's also seven I am statements, uh, one of which we're going to look at today, and there's seven discourses. So, through the use of the number seven, I imagine John is saying, this is a, 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 a complete, there's a completeness about the message that I want to convey about Jesus in this gospel narrative. The first sign was when Jesus turned water into wine. Second sign was the healing of a royal official son. We, we actually didn't look at that passage. Uh, the third sign was the healing of the paralytic, which uh, Pastor Fred preached on. And for the next, um, the next two weeks, we're going to look at John 6, but I don't know if we're going to hit on both signs. But in John chapter 6, you actually find two, two signs. So you have the fourth sign, which is where Jesus feeds 5,000. And then you have the fifth sign, which takes place immediately after that, which is kind of like the, the part I skipped uh, in the passage where Jesus walks on water. So we got signs 4 and signs 5. Today, we're going to just kind of focus on the fourth sign and the discourse that follows and maybe next week we'll hit on when Jesus walks on water. At this point, Jesus is a very popular figure. And it says in verse 2 that a large crowd was following him. And the reason they're following him is because they saw the signs that he performed. Uh, they're very enamored with Jesus. And who wouldn't be enamored with Jesus at this point? Who wouldn't be enamored with somebody who is performing all these miracles? Because there's a real wow factor. He turned water into wine. That alone, I bet a ton of people would want to follow him, right? And see what else he can do. But he's also performed these incredible healings. And let's say you're somebody who's sick. Maybe you know somebody, a family member who's also a paralytic. Of course you would be enamored with Jesus. And you would want to uh, follow the crowd and see the amazing things that Jesus is doing. And uh, we'll see... Um, We'll see this a little bit later, but the crowd is actually not following Jesus for the reasons why they ought to be following him, but uh, they're following him because they, they are simply just enamored with what he is able to do. The feeding of the 5,000, of course, is a very incredible sign. <coughs> I don't know if you've ever, I don't know, maybe if you had a party or a, a wedding or you've been to like a bar mitzvah or something like that where there's like a ton of people, maybe a corporate event. Maybe there's like two or three hundred people and it's like it's your responsibility to make sure all these people are fed. You're right. That's very stressful. And it's like a lot. It's a very hard work. Now you imagine what if there are five thousand people and it's not literally five thousand people because the way that in the ancient world they counted, it's uh, five thousand heads of households, so five thousand families. So commentators say it's probably more um, closer to like fifteen thousand people here. Imagine trying to feed thousands and thousands of people who apparently don't have much money and don't have much food on them. But that's what Jesus does. In the story, there's a boy. He has five barley loaves and two fish. And barley loaves were the bread uh, that the poor would eat. And the small details of this passage is telling us how much they lacked in this moment. Not only did they look to a, a child, a boy, for the food to feed this crowd, but... They also used, it was a poor boy. It was a boy who didn't have much, who was eating barley loaves. And Jesus takes the incredible amount of lacking, this is, a, I'm making this word up, the incredible amount of lackingness, 
right? <laughs> having very little. And what he does is he turns it into a, a moment of great abundance. He takes this little food that this poor boy has, he multiplies it so that the entire crowd could eat until they were full. And he's able to do this uh, just like in the same manner in which he turned water into wine. And of course, there's so many great lessons in this passage that would be worth reflecting on. But what I want to do is I actually want to focus on what Jesus says on the next day in his discourse. In verse 26, Jesus says this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So it turns out this crowd that is following him, uh, you know, they ate food and they were like, oh, right, we're not hungry anymore. And therefore they're following Jesus because they had their fill of loaves. But it also turns out that's not a good thing because in the very next verse, what Jesus says is, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So seeking Jesus is not enough, but it turns out that it matters why you are seeking Jesus in the first place and what you are looking for as you seek Jesus. You can seek Jesus uh, for what he can do and still completely miss who Jesus is. Today's a Super Bowl, right? Uh, I know today's a Super Bowl. I know a lot more people who are interested in the Super Bowl, who maybe weren't as interested in the Super Bowl last year, are interested because there's a very famous person uh, connected to the Super Bowl, um, Taylor Swift, right? Taylor Swift is dating one of the Chiefs players, and <coughs> I, I don't envy the level of fame Taylor Swift has, right? I think she's incredibly talented as a musician, but I would not want her life. Uh, she is so famous that whenever something happens in a game, right, the camera has to just pan on her and show her reaction, right? She is so famous and so popular, she cannot go, like, to public spaces, uh, just, you know, she can't go to the grocery store by herself uh, without a crowd following her. Uh, there was an interview that she did many, many years ago with Barbara Walters, and Barbara Walters asked her, what is the most abnormal thing about your life? And her answer is this. The most abnormal thing about my life is crowds form everywhere I go. That's not normal. And as a result, therefore, she needs to have security, go with her wherever she goes. And she realized that she hasn't truly been alone or by herself for many, many years because of this phenomenon, because she is just so famous. Now, on the one hand, the formation of crowds means that people adore you, right? They, they love you. They want to see you. And maybe, uh, <coughs> um, maybe you know, for the person who's actually drawing that crowd, for whatever celebrity it is, whether it's Taylor Swift or somebody else, I think in those moments, they probably don't feel uh, like they're being treated as a human. Uh, people are just kind of, they want what you have to offer, right? So most people, they, they want a selfie, they want an autograph, and they're kind of drawn to these like famous people because they want something from them. Give me, give me a selfie. Take a selfie with me. And you kind of feel a little bit dehumanized as, as the famous person that is drawing the crowd. And that's, I think, the downside of fame. Everyone always wants something from you, but they don't necessarily want you, right? When you think of Jesus, <coughs> there are probably two important questions that we should ask ourselves. First question is, do we, do we want Jesus in the first place? Uh, do we, do we want to seek him? right? Is he somebody that we want in our lives? 
And if the answer to that question is yes, then we should also ask the second question of why do we seek him? Uh, do we want Jesus for the same reason that the crowds want Jesus? Uh, do we want him for what he has to give to us for food that perishes? Or do we actually want Jesus because he gives us food that endures to eternal life? Now, of course, um, there is a difference between someone like Taylor Swift and Jesus, aside from the obvious things, like Jesus is divine, right? <coughs> uh, there's a difference in that I think Taylor Swift, there's a limitation to who she is in that she can only give the crowd the temporary things that they are seeking. So she, she probably will give like autographs and selfies and things like that. Uh, that's, that's what they want. She can't really give more of herself to them. Uh, she cannot have like an intimate relationship with everyone because she doesn't have the ability to do that. Not only does Jesus have the ability to do that, but that's actually what this sign is ultimately pointing to. Later on in the passage, Jesus would say, I am the bread, right? I am the bread. And then he would say something pretty controversial, which would then turn the crowds away uh, I guess you could say modern lingo, he gets canceled by the crowd, right? But this is what he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, I won't get too much into the detail of why what he said was very controversial, especially to Jewish people in particular, but let's take the overall meaning of what he is actually saying here. Jesus is saying that this sign of feeding the 5,000 was ultimately a sign to point to the fact that Jesus is the one who feeds us. Not as a mediator who can create bread for us and then give us bread, but he himself is the true bread that we feed off of, that we consume, and that our souls need for eternal life. Now, eternal life, I think, is a phrase we might hear a lot, uh, but we might not all have um, an understanding of what Jesus means when he says eternal life because it could, it could sound like what he's saying is like you just kind of live forever. And if you picture living forever and you impute our current lives and saying what we, ha what we do now is going to go on forever as if joy is ultimately found in having an unlimited amount of time, then not only I think do we miss the point, but I don't think that necessarily sounds all that great. <laughs> <laughs> especially if your life is not so great. Uh, when Jesus talks about eternal life, it's much more than living forever, but I think it's ultimately a reference to the quality of life that he has to offer to us. There's times when someone might say like, oh, this is the life, or someone might say things like, I feel so alive in this moment, right? When people say that, they're not simply just talking about, oh, my heart is beating and I'm breathing, I'm so alive, right? Uh, there's a deeper meaning to that. When people say that, what they're actually saying is this. I feel incredibly fulfilled. I feel joy. I feel excitement. I feel like I am made whole. And you see, that is ultimately the problem of sin, is that sin fractures everything, including us. Uh, if you think about fracturing a bone, for example, it means that while you may still have use of your arm, there's always going to be pain associated with using that arm. You aren't able to use that arm to its fullest ability because of that fracture. And that's ultimately what sin does to us. We are a fractured people. Our vocations are fractured from our gifts and our desires. 
That's why some people hate their jobs. But if you're one of the people who love your job, then uh, there's a wholeness in terms of what you desire and what you're doing. Or our actions and maybe even our reactions are fractured from what we know we ought to be, the kind of people that we want to be. That's why uh, some people, we have difficult relationships. I think the moments where we feel alive are tastes of what it actually means to feel completely whole. Where you have a desire and that desire is fulfilled. Where you feel like you were created to do something and you're able to do it. I think that's what it means to feel alive. And how do we get there? We have to be made whole. And how are we made whole? When we believe in him whom he has sent. That's what John said, or that's what Jesus says, right? Not just mental assent and saying, sure, I believe that Jesus was real and he died for my sin, but something deeper than that, a deep trust that is deep enough to say, Jesus, you are the bread of life. Whatever I am seeking to satisfy my hunger, whatever I am seeking to make myself whole, will not ultimately satisfy me because, Jesus, you are the one I truly need. Jesus, you are the only one who can bring wholeness out of um, me, who is very fractured. Isn't that what we do when we partake in communion? Uh, It's not the bread that fills us, but it's what that bread is pointing to. Jesus is the one who fills us. But being fulfilled, of course, comes at a price. Uh, When we have communion, we see that price. It's Jesus' broken body. Now, I want to point out one of the subtleties of John's gospel that uh, you only really see in the Greek. Uh, I said there were seven I am statements. I didn't really explain what I meant by that. Uh, When Jesus says, I am, and he says it seven, seven times, so like, I am the bread of life, I am the vine, I am the resurrection and the life, right? These are the I am statements. In the Hebrew Bible, I am is how God identifies himself to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter, thir- uh, chapter 3. Uh, in that story, do you remember Moses asks God, what should I say when people ask me your name? And God's response is this. He says, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent, you, uh, sent me to you. So people understood I am to be a divine name. When John uses this divine name as an identifier to Jesus, and it's, it's much clearer in Greek, but I won't get into the details. But when John uses this I am identifier to Jesus, what he is basically telling us is Jesus is divine. He is identifying Jesus with the God of Moses in Exodus 3. And of course, there's some Trinitarian theology that we have to unpack to fully get there, which I won't do now. But all of that is simply to say this. You think about it, God is someone who cannot be broken, right? That's one of the things that sets God apart from the rest of creation. God cannot be fractured like we are fractured. And yet, that is exactly what happens to Jesus. The one who cannot be fractured became fractured. The one who cannot be broken was broken on the cross. The one who cannot be consumed says to us, consume me and never go hungry again. We have a deeper hunger within us, and this deeper hunger ultimately reflects a deep desire to be made whole, whether we realize it or not. We hunger for something that will make us feel alive, and um, where we look for it is, you know, we think it's going to come in wealth. 
We think it's going to come in our success. We think it's going to come in love or romantic love. We think it's going to come from if people respect us. We think it's going to come from if life is just comfortable, right? And I'm not so busy and tired and stressed out all the time. Why do we hunger for these things? And I think we ultimately deep down hunger for these things because we think these things will make us feel whole, will make us feel alive by matching our life to our desires. And yet, by seeking these things, Jesus' conclusion is that we align ourselves with this crowd. Longing for food that perishes rather than the food that endures to eternal life. Friends, the only thing that will satisfy us and fulfill us and make us feel alive, the only thing that is capable of doing that is the person of Jesus. Everything else is fool's gold. It will draw us, but in the end it will disappoint us. And here's a struggle of faith that you and I, we all uh, experience, is that we oftentimes live or find it difficult to live in the reality of that truth, which is why... By default, we still chase the bread that perishes. Uh, did you know this week, besides being Valentine's Day, uh, did you know this week the Lenten season begins? And the Lenten season is a season of self-examination. During this season, some people choose to fast. Why is fasting uh, an important spiritual discipline? Something that you know, modern Christians in the West probably don't do as, as often as we should. Why is fasting an important spiritual discipline? Why is denying yourself bread spiritually beneficial? I think one of the reasons is it gives us an opportunity to look to Jesus as the one who ultimately satisfies us, to feel uh, the hunger pains that we have and to say, "This, this bread looks tempting because I know it will make this pain go away temporarily, but then to spiritually say, but that's not the bread that I ought to consume or long for. Uh, I actually think fasting is, and um, I mean, full disclosure, I don't fast all that much, uh, which I should. I actually think fasting is probably even more, uh, more important discipline to engage in today. Why? You know, because in our particular context, uh, nobody experiences hunger as much, right? In our particular context. Uh, food is so easy to get compared to Let's say people in the ancient world. Uh, we are a consumer society, and therefore all we do is consume and consume and consume. Uh, you think about, you know, the fact that we can go to a fast food joint and get like a, a burger uh, versus like people in the ancient world where meat was much harder to get. Uh, it's probably much more important to go through seasons where we voluntarily restrain ourselves from consuming and experience what it's like to be hungry because we won't necessarily experience it by default. To feel our stomachs grumbling, to feel the weakness of our bodies. Perhaps then we will know what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Can you imagine feeling such physical longing, physical pain, physical hunger, and yet being able to connect to Jesus in such a way where that hunger pales in comparison to the sense of satisfaction that Jesus gives us spiritually. And I don't know if you can have those kinds of experiences aside from actually going through the experience of physical hunger. Perhaps then we will know what it means to feed on Christ and to be satisfied. Jesus is the bread of life. He calls us to to consume him, 
And, uh, you know, I think it's like somewhat metaphorical uh, in the sense of it means that uh, we believe in him, trust in him, and in consuming him, allow him to abide in us so that we can abide in him. And we'll get this passage again next week uh, from a different angle, but maybe this week. Uh, you know, we're not like, um, we don't do anything like formal for Lent, but perhaps this Lent season, consider fasting, <laughs> not for dietary purposes, but for spiritual purposes, to know that Jesus is the bread of life, that he is the one who is broken for us, to know that as we feed on him, we will never hunger or thirst, to know that the things that the crowds want from Jesus ultimately do pale in comparison what Jesus actually has to offer us in the promise of eternal life. And who knows? Maybe we'll experience such deep satisfaction in him that it will reorient our perspective and the things that we're chasing uh, will recognize uh, they aren't so important and so fulfilling as I thought they were because I have Christ. Let's pray.